Hi, my name is Keith Bose, and I'm the Managing Director of Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources owns the Kalakira Uranium Project, which is located in Malawi. It's a past producer, having produced almost 11 million pounds of uranium between 2009 and 2014. And it is Lotus's intention to bring that unit back online again at a reasonable or at an appropriate uh, uranium price, which I think we're starting to see now. So looking forward to uh, having a conversation, Emma. Yeah, interesting, interesting year ahead. Uh, really interesting at the moment, a lot going on. Um, we've seen a little drop off from the gains of the last couple of weeks off the back of news out of uh, Ukraine. Russia seems to have um, uh, been targeting one of the nuclear power plants over there. What, what, what's your take on all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's worrying news when you look at that kind of stuff, um, as I have been trying to follow it today, and there's obviously a whole lot of different stories out there in the moment. But I think the consensus is that of the six nuclear reactors that are within that Ukrainian fleet, let's say at the moment, five of them have been shut down. Uh, the sixth one is still operating and is providing power for the cooling systems for the other five reactors. So everything seems to be okay at the moment there with regard to the reactors themselves. The fire that everybody was talking about, which has now been put out, appears to be in one of the um, administration buildings, a training building or something like that. That fire has now been put out, but it does seem like the Russian troops have actually taken control of the facility now. But based again, looking and reading through various pieces of information, it does seem the Ukrainian um, employers of the facility are still in control of the whole place in terms of managing the systems and all that kind of stuff. So concerning, of course, but I don't think it is probably as bad as everybody thought it was when the news first came out in um, our morning time. But you, you can see how nervous people are on that, out there because I think when there was talk about Chernobyl last week, there was like you know there was, the headlines are out radiation increases around Chernobyl, but I think as it turned out, it was disturbance of, of the soil and the, the, the volumes were mi minimal. Um, and then again, with this story, you know, you can see people are thinking, oh my goodness, is there a black swan event coming down the line um, with, you know, nuclear, again, like a Fukushima situation, like a Chernobyl of old. So again, do you, do you, do you sense that? And do you, do you think that's rational thinking? Well, I'm not sure it's rational thinking, but I certainly can see that. And I suppose uranium is one of the commodities that has had these black swan events over the years. I mean, you mentioned Fukushima and obviously it was Chernobyl before that as well. So I think the investors are quite sensitive to anything that is a significant difference to the normal operating um, conditions. And they react to that because their history is there was a Fukushima, there was a Chernobyl. Uh, is this going to be another one of those? And I think what it's the responsibility for the industry and hopefully the responsibility of the of the news and all that kind of stuff to actually put out the truth. I mean, there was some there was some headline that went out this morning that said this is going to be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. I mean, that's that's just absolute blatant lying as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's ridiculous the way that people try and ramp this kind of stuff up. I mean, I mean, I don't know a great deal about the actual design of those specific reactors, but what, I, what I'm hearing from various people, they've been designed to an absolute standard that could actually, actually take almost a direct hit from an aircraft landing on them. I mean, they've seriously got seriously strong designs associated with them with lots and lots of safety systems associated with them. They have the processes, they have the people, they have everything in place to be able to uh, control this. I can't see another Chernobyl happening there, to be honest. I just don't see that happening at all. And yet the sensationalist news is coming up and saying it's going to be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. I, you know, I think we just need to be looking at things sensibly, logically, 
and actually getting the real information and the real facts out there in terms of what's actually happening. It's, it's an interesting environment actually to operate. I think you know current investors in the uranium space will perhaps will hold steady or hold fast, or most most of them will. People perhaps come into it, you know more you know more recently and haven't had the sort of the, the history there. They're going to get affected by those sensationalist headlines. They are going to react to those, but on balance. Has you know whatever other you know people got to sell newspapers and all of that. So the headlines will be will be extreme, um, but on balance, do you think that the thesis still holds up, or is it going to be affected by this? The, 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 well, hopefully not from very much longer, but, but continuous news of that nature does that dramatically change things out there in the market? No, I think there are these short term. Disruptions, let's say, and I mean, to call Ukraine a disruption is probably disrespecting what's going on there. But um, I think the long-term thesis is still very, very strong. And probably, if anything, I would say it's probably strengthened. I mean, on the back of some of this news coming out, we've, we've heard news about Germany looking at res or at least maintaining their nuclear fleet for longer. We've now got um, a number of European countries and even the US at the moment is talking about it. How do we diversify away from the oil and gas that's coming out of Russia? And what are the things that you can do about that? They're obviously going to focus on renewables. They're going to look at alternative sources for perhaps LNG, of which Australia is a big producer of that. But nuclear is definitely in that talk as well. Are we actually going to see an acceleration now in terms of new reactors or new mines coming on or something like that? So. I think the thesis is still there. The, the issues of um, zero carbon emissions or the targets of zero carbon emissions, the issues of greenhouse gases, the issues of energy supply going forward, they still exist at the moment. And, you know, we still got to address those in the long term. And, and I don't know what it is, three years' time or five years' time, we're still going to have those problems and we need to be working on those solutions now. It's not just a case of energy security for, for these countries. It's the cost of the energy to the end user, right? Whether that's an industry or whether it's people, people's homes. Um, that's been the big conversation, you know, pre-Russia, Ukraine. Um, is the exacerbation um, of the, the situation with the Russia-Ukraine situation going to speed up the process, approvals process for things like nuclear, whether they be SMR or, or, or full-scale uh, reactors? Um, because it seems to me that countries very quickly change the language to suit, like Germany saying, well, we will continue to use coal um, for, for now and we may extend uh, the life of these these reactors because of what's going on with with Russia, the situation with Russia. So, do, do, do you think that we will get a, a bit more of a, a sane, uh, rational conversation from uh, more uh, countries to, you know, basically accelerate the process of being energy uh, energy secure? I think it will accelerate the process, but I think it's going to accelerate it from a different direction. I think you're going to end up with one thing maybe where the general public is more accepting of uranium and nuclear energy and those types of things. So you're not going to have as many um, issues with addressing that or stating a politician coming up and talking about nuclear energy is probably going to be much more likely well received within the within the communities or within the public and doesn't have to worry about that um, that backlash that probably two or three three years ago was there. So I think that's a positive moving forward. And I would think on the other side of it, from a financing side as well, I think there'll be a lot 
easier financing coming through for these nuclear reactors moving forward. We know that through the EU taxonomy discussion that's going on there, that um, cheaper public financing should be available as a result of that. And I think that's how you're going to see an acceleration in terms of the installation of nuclear reactors and all that kind of stuff, rather than from a permitting and that kind of stuff. I think that's going to stay exactly the way it is, and it should stay the way it is. We have to accept that we need to go through rigorous processes in order to be able to install these reactors, and we need to make sure that they're absolutely safe when they go in there. So I don't think that's going to change a great deal, but I do think from a public and from a financing perspective, you're going to see some changes that should hopefully reduce the amount of time that's required to make decisions and then to um, install these units. We've, we've seen um, a quite interesting move and change in policy here in the UK with, with, with regards to housing, right? So we are building more houses to make it more affordable for more people, as, as we should. It, it, it's got too expensive for our, for our kids and, and, and their kids. Um, so the government has stepped in and said it will no longer be a local decision or if local, if we can't get local councils to make the decision as to where to put these houses, we're going to come in and tell you where to do it. Do you think that we'll see, a, we could see a situation with not just the UK, but other, other countries, um, across Europe or across the world, we're saying, okay, nimbyism is stopping us from moving forward. It's stopping us from actually being able to deliver this energy security. Can you see governments or the town, um, from the government changing with regards to actually saying not only we will provide cheap finance, but we will ensure that these projects go ahead. Because it's, it's very difficult on PPE, PPE basis for these private companies to come in and say, I will, I will uh, commit to a very large scale uh, and large financial cost if it's going to get held up for decades within that jurisdiction. I think the government needs to step forward in that in terms of actually making sure that their systems or their processes um, are more efficient, less red tape and all that kind of stuff. And even if they need to, as you've mentioned, maybe selecting areas where maybe it would be optimal to put a nuclear reactor or something like that. And I know you're mentioning about the UK. I'm not too sure what the term is, but I know they're putting through a bill is it, to do some alternative financing uh, for reactors as well. I mean, that should be seen as a real positive for someone who wants to build a new reactor over there. And I believe it's not only for the large reactors, probably applies to the SMRs as well, that it'll be going forward. And there's a real potential that I think that the SMRs in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years time, they could well be the growth by which nuclear energy increases because they are cheaper, because they are easier to build, because you do most of the construction within a factory and then deliver the unit to site. And then you can just put modules of them to build up there, uh, you know, what you want. And you were talking about, you know, decreasing prices and all that kind of stuff. Building multiple modular reactors makes them cheaper. So if you if you could end up with a book, you know, build, build a book that says you're going to be building 16 or 20 SMRs or something like that, surely that must reduce the cost going forward. It also provides, you know, job securities and you know, efficiencies and all these types of things driving through. And if the government can support that kind of stuff, that's where I see the benefits coming through from the systems. Okay. Interesting times on, on, on that side of things. Back to the geopolitics, though, of the, of the moment, because I'm trying to work out how all of this affects my investing thesis. You were saying it's a case of it will be business as usual. The thesis is still strong. But... I still can't have, can't, can't help but thinking about Russia's relationship. So what Russia's doing, obviously in Ukraine, Russia's relationship with, um, Kazakh, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Russia's relationship with, with China and, and how that's going to impact 
well, specifically um, uranium uh, developers in Africa. So, what's your what's your take on that on the geopolitics of what what where Russia is today and how that's going to influence the uranium market? I think one of the things that has been spoken about or was announced by Kazatoprom in Kazakhstan um, probably a couple of months ago was the setup of this new warehouse that sits on the border between Kazakhstan and China. And it would appear that China is looking to source the majority of their, or a large portion of the uranium that they require for their new nuclear fleet from Kazakhstan. So we know that China, in terms of the majority of the yellow cake that they need, they normally get that from Africa and Namibia seems to be their key source area. They either own assets there or they have partnerships in there that allows them to get a significant portion of the production from those assets. They now seem to be tying up Kazakhstan as well. And if we look at the geopolitical thing, I think you could you know, map perhaps Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Russia, sort of as a group together. And you can see the relationship then building between China and this East European group, which maybe then isolates out the rest of the world. So someone like France or someone like the US, well, where are they gonna go and have a look for the uranium that they require? If a lot of it's been tied up by the uh, Chinese in Kazakhstan, they're going to have to start looking for their own supply. And I know there's been conversations that was held today, or at least news that came out today, about I believe it's the Republicans in the Senate have put a, a letter forward to uh, President Biden saying that he needs to work on the US building up their own uranium mines to produce their own uranium going forward. Now, that could be a relatively long-term strategy. It might take five years, 10 years for them to do it. In the Short term, they're going to have to go and find alternative supplies. And Africa is one of the places, or Australia is one of the places that you would go and, go and look for that additional supply. And I think that's good for, comp for companies like ourselves, like Lotus, who want to come online again and produce and sell into the North American market. Well, I think it's good for you because there's potentially some competitive tension between China and, and the US in terms of sec securing that feed. Right, because China has typically seen Africa as they sort of their, their their own food basket. They've been in there for the last of thirty years, um, tying up um, contracts and offtake agreements on a bunch of commodities. So, if the U.S. can move quickly enough, it'll be interesting for you guys for sure. There's nothing better than a bit of competitive tension, right? Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. Okay. Well, look, um, let's say, so which kind of goes to where I want to go with this conversation, which is, which is about actually the business of doing business in Africa, right? So there's lots of conversation, uh, in the, in the, in the market, or certainly there's a narrative being pushed by some, um, that Africa is uninvestable, that, you know, people should be looking to North America. It's, it's a first world nation, ranks number one jurisdiction for mining and all of those wonderful benefits. Um, and that, it's not safe for investors to think about investing in Africa. What's what's your experience? I mean, you're you you know you you've, you're you're there now. You've worked there for a yeah, while. I mean, what's your experience? Yeah, well, I was born in Zimbabwe. I went to school in Zimbabwe, lived for eighteen years in Zimbabwe, and then went down to South Africa to go to university there, and ended up working for Anglo American for about ten or twelve years in South Africa and in Namibia as well. So I spent you know the first half three two thirds of my life living in Africa. I'm very, very comfortable in Africa. I actually feel at home in Africa. I know how Africa works. I understand what you need to go through to be able to do these things. And I have no concerns whatsoever. Not only am I doing this project now in Malawi, but I've been involved in another project in Malawi. I've done projects in Tanzania. 
I've done projects in Namibia and I've done projects in West Africa as well. And I'm personally, I'm very, very comfortable working, working in Africa. I don't think anyone has got to be scared of scared about it at all. There are some nuances with working there, but I can assure you there's nuances working everywhere else in the world, world as well. And once you understand what those nuances are, then it is a good place to be able to do business. We have a fantastic relationship with the government in Malawi, and they are incredibly supportive of us restarting our asset back up again because they recognize the benefits that we're going to bring into the country. We're going to be bringing foreign exchange or foreign currency into it. Um, we know that when uh, Calicara was oper operating previously, it contributed somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent of Malawi's GDP. There's a very, very significant revenue generator for the, uh, for the country. Not only can we provide um, through money, through taxes and that, but there's obviously jobs, there's training opportunities, business opportunities for small businesses within the areas and all this kind of stuff. And the government wants those types of things. That's what it needs to drive up its own um, economy. So it is incredibly supportive of us restarting this project uh, back up again. I mean, we have a direct line to the Minister of Mines, a direct line to the President. We can speak to those guys if we need to, if we run into any issues that we want, you know, that are, that are holding us up. I've got no issues in Africa whatsoever. But uh, people talk about, well, there's AK-47s, there's suitcases of money, there's an old boys club, it's, it, it's, it's a different environment. So is, are those the nuances you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously those things do, do, do happen in some, in, in some parts of Africa, but they happen in other parts of, 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 of the world as well. But I'm, I mean, what I'm seeing at the moment is Africa's going through a transition at this stage. So there has been a number of years, let's say, in the past where you've ended up with, you know, after the liberation of, of uh, the country from colonial rule and all those types of things, and perhaps the first lot of leaders that come in, you know, they've been lining their cases with various things. But things have started to move past that. I mean, the younger generation who were born in African countries that were post-liberalization or, you know, of the system, they don't know anything about the colonial world. They want to grow their, you know, grow their economies. They want to support their country and all that kind of stuff. Corruption is not high on their mind moving forward from, uh, from what I've seen. And certainly in Malawi, we've never once been asked anything uh, in terms of, you know, money and paper bags and all that kind of stuff. That's never once been into that, commented on, suggested in, in any way for us. So you say you're comfortable working in Africa and you've worked in multiple countries in Africa and different types of projects. I mean, is it, is it broadly the, the same? Well, I guess what's the question I'm trying to ask is, or the question I'm trying to have answered is, is it any different from any other country in terms of mining? Um, I think Africa is a little bit unique in terms of its mining, and um, it's maybe a little more like South America in some ways. So you've got, um, let's say you've got a large, relatively or semi-skilled workforce that is relatively low cost to use, so that maybe the way you try and set your mine up or set your operations up is you don't go for high automation, for example, and I'm just picking that as an example, which requires highly skilled staff to be able to maintain the system. You might go to a slightly more basic system that perhaps requires more labor to operate it. Because labor is freely available and labor is cheap, it's not an issue for you. And also you are supporting the local communities about that. 
So maybe the way that you think about operating some things in Africa is slightly different to what if you're going to operate something in Canada, operate something in Australia, or operate something in you know the US or something like that. You do think about the skill sets that are available to you, the cost base that's available to you, and how do you then optimize your process or your plant or your production to be able to maximize revenues from that. And I think that's maybe a little bit different. And I think it does require a bit of a change in mindset in order to be able to appreciate that. I think if someone were coming in from Canada or Australia or the US, and they wanted to basically duplicate one of their plants there, I don't think that would really work um, as work in Africa. I think there would be issues with that. You need to design a plant that is capable of running and running efficiently in Africa. Okay, so I think it's, I think it's so that's the the aspect of ESG, but um, I think it's widely accepted that you, um, uranium developers in Africa are gonna be the next out of the gate in terms of production, right? Because permitting licensing seems to happen more smoothly, but I'm, I'm trying to understand why that is the case because your your canadian cousins uh would be very jealous of that it's a case of that you know is it a case they they kind of ride roughshod over um the environment things like environmental um or indeed you know objections from you know the locals or you know first nations as would be described in canada are the shortcuts taken is that why it's quicker There's no shortcuts taken. So we don't ride roughshod over anything. We don't do any shortcuts or anything like that. But I do believe that there is a stronger desire from the government to see an operation um, up and running for the reasons that I've mentioned. Not only does it derive revenue for the government, but as jobs and all that kind of stuff. So in the conversations that I've had with the local Malawian government and other governments in other African countries, when I compare those to the conversations I've had in Canada, there is a lot more desire from those government people. How can we help you to get this up and running quicker? What can we do? Because we want this mine running. We want jobs for our people. We want revenue and all that kind of stuff. So when we're submitting documentation or whatever, I'm not saying it doesn't get reviewed, but probably when they go through those types of documents, they've got a mind in terms of, are are we going to do any damage to the environment? No, they're not going to do any damage to the environment. Do we need to go in a lot more detail than that? Let's ask some questions around that. But they have the background view that they're looking for, you know, they want you to get up and running to be able to generate jobs for their people. That's effectively what they want. So they probably go through the motions a little bit quicker than what you might see in Canada through the process. That's the way that I'm viewing it at the moment. We know through some of the stuff that we're doing in Malawi, okay, we already have our environmental impact or our environmental license in place. That was done under under the previous owners. But we know when we start talking about, and I'll pick an example, getting our discharge, um, our water discharge permit, which we require on an annual basis, we turn that around relatively quickly in Malawi. They know that we've been discharging water on an annual basis for the last six or seven years or so. We know how to do it properly. We have the system set up to make sure we're not doing any damage to the environment. And we present that as a, you know, we're going to do the same as we did last year. And that's accepted. You know, there's not a huge multi-party or multi-committee review of everything that's been done. The government looks at what you've presented to them. Does it comply with the law? Are we going to meet the standards that are we, that are required? Have they done this before? Do we trust them? Yes, we do. Let's go over ahead and get it started. 
And I think that's maybe the difference that we're seeing between Africa and some of the other first world nations at this stage. Yeah, so it's interesting on that front. I mean, and with the regards to on the money side of things, I mean, obviously, we've got inflationary costs. We've seen, we've seen these effects, the damage that COVID has done. Um, and it's, it's, you know, m meaningful in terms of costs for, uh, companies looking to get into, into production, you know, um, what are, what are the, what are the things that, um, does, is it, is it, is it more expensive? Is the impact more or less in Africa than it would be in terms of cost elsewhere in the world? Because we, we've seen people having to redo feasibility studies and that we've been quoted increases, you know, on average five to 15% on these bought in costs. Uh, in, including salary costs. I mean, what effects will the kind of the COVID and, and potentially the Russian-Ukraine situation put on projects in Africa? I don't think projects in Africa are particularly, um, you know, exposed to inflation issues. I think all projects around the world are. But I think it's actually what you're trying to do within the project. And what I mean by that is if you have a greenfield project that requires you to buy a lot of new equipment, new mills, new crushers, new tanks, new generators, whatever it is, new MCCs and transformers and all this kind of stuff, I think those are the items that are likely to be impacted by inflation and also impacted by the logistics issues that we're seeing now with regard to increasing freight costs and all those types of things. If you've got a project that is sitting on care and maintenance where all of the equipment is already there, and when you're looking at restarting that project back up again, what you're talking about is replacing conveyor belts, servicing equipment, um, corro anti-corrosion stuff, maybe a little bit of concrete work and all this kind of stuff. That to me is a very different type of exposure to inflation. And if you're doing that type of work in Africa, as I mentioned, because you have a large source of relatively cheap semi-skilled labor, the costs associated with that probably aren't as impacted by inflation as much as the other projects who are looking to buy the new equipment. So, for example, when we talk about our project and we've mentioned this $50 million for the refurbishment of the plant, I think we are exposed to inflation on that. But I don't think we're exposed at the upper limits that you're talking about, the 15%. And I've heard as high as 30% actually on some of the other projects that they're looking at. I think we could be in the, you know, the one to five range maybe is sort of where I think we could end up sitting there. The one thing that maybe is a little bit different is when we start to look at consumables, when we look at some of the reagents that we require, whether that be sulfur or whether that be acid or hydrogen peroxide or, you know, those types of things. Those ones, I think, are potentially an area where we're going to have to work hard to make sure we're getting the, boss, the best possible deal. And we're competing against other projects for those as well. So from an inflation perspective, probably the capital is not so badly affected, I don't think, from our perspective. But I think we're going to see some impacts on inflation in terms of some of the reagents that we require. And what that means for an increase in our C1 cost, we're not sure yet. Probably pretty minor because consumables don't you know, they make up a, a portion of it, but there are certainly other things that also contribute to the C1 costs that are maybe larger. I mean, you guys are meaningfully advanced, um, it, it, even amongst the developer uh, companies, because obviously you, you're sitting there with the inherited uh, infrastructure in, in place. But um, where, where, do you, where, do you, where do you see this year going for the, the developers, the African developers? Um, because... It, it, 
the utilities are now getting a little bit more uh, anxious. I, I suspect I'm hearing RFP requests um, are, are being are being requested. Um, you've got a situation where um, perhaps with the sput activity um, being fairly sort of erratic, depending on the cash available to them, but they have been buying up pounds in the market. But um, is is that is that what you guys are relying on um, happening more and more this year? Are there bigger moves in the market that we as a uh, retail investor should be looking at, which are more important? And, and does any of the above affect what you're working towards? I think, I mean, the first comment to make on that is that the spot price today went up to $51.65, I think was, was the number it closed at, which is the highest we've seen since 2012. And that's a big jump that we've seen. Even with the Ukraine issues and all that kind of stuff, we actually haven't seen a drop off in the uranium price that's maintained at the 50, uh, plus 50 for the last two days or so. We do know when the prices moved from 42 to 45, 46 late last week, there was a bit of a flurry of uh, utilities coming out with their request for proposals. I think if this 51, 52 dollars is maintained for a period of time, I think the utilities are going to be even more concerned than they were last week, let's say. And I would expect to see even more uh, requests for proposals coming out. But what we would like to do as a company is we don't necessarily want to contract all of our material through this tender process, these on-market RFPs. We would like the utilities to open up a one-on-one conversation with us. We think that's where we can get some, some additional value for ourselves and, you know, build up a personal relationship with them. So what I'm hoping is during this year the utilities will start reaching out and start to make inquiries about, can we enter into what they call these off-market contracts? And that ensures their diversification in terms of geographical diversification of supply. They're not just looking at price, they're also looking at risk going forward and also allows them to look at other things. I mean, I think one of the things we've spoken about previously is really important for us as a company to focus on our ESG stuff, our environmental, social and governance things. We're working really hard on that. It's not only important to maintain our social license to operate, but we also recognize that by working hard in those areas, we become more attractive to these utilities who also want to build up their supply chain as having a high ESG score and those types of things. And those are the benefits they can get by doing these off-market discussions. And that's what I'm hoping we're going to see towards you know, later on this year, we're going to see more of those sorts of activities happening because I think those are the ones that are really, really important for a company like Lotus.